1: Hello, and welcome to IntelliCast. And we have a special jam-packed episode. I'm staring at a lot of people on Zoom. This is Season 4, Episode 36. Thank you all for joining. Joining me as always, not just for today, is Brian Peterson. Hey, Brian. Hey, thank you for saying as always versus for the moment, right now. Right. Everybody else worried that I'm going to get fired. Permanently joining us as co-host and producer is Brian Peterson. Also joining me today is Andrew About You're about a dozen times in on the podcast now. Hey, Hey, uh,
2: who's counting? But yes, I
1: I think so. I think so. Uh, Glad to be here. Really looking forward to this. And the most important people on the show today are from Brand Trust, who is an awesome market research agency. And it's Alex Millett. He is a managing director at Brand Trust. Hey, Alex. Hey, Brian. Hey, Brian. Hey, Andrew. Good. Good nice to see, to see you, you guys again. again. Yeah. yeah. And also Lindsay Bartell, who is the Senior Analyst at Brand Trust. Thanks for joining, Lindsay. Nice to see you.
0: Yeah, good to see you guys again. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, and I'm, uh, this is such a timely episode, I think. And we're going to talk about kind of measuring how we measure trust in brands, which is really your core competency. And me as kind of a layman market researcher, on the news right now, I'm sure this is probably every day, but right now I was obsessed with what's going on with Southwest airlines. You know, they, they canceled hundreds of flights, which, you know, that happens sometimes, right? We don't. Thousands, I think. Yeah. Thousands of flights over the weekend. That happens occasionally, but now it's like, are you lying to us? Are you telling us the whole truth? And there's probably other examples. I'm sure you all know them, but this is a great time to talk about how, to measure trust in brands, why measure trust in brands, why it's important. I thought we'd have a conversation about that today. So that's what we'll talk about. That sounds fantastic. We're looking forward to it. Are you all following the Southwest Airlines story and are you using this like I just did uh, or no? We've certainly been talking about it
3: uh, um, amongst ourselves. The uh, As we were just you know joking a moment ago before you hit record that... Um, it feels like any time the topic of trust in brands comes up, it, it's very easy to point to some example of some brand has let us all down in the recent uh, past or in the in the popular consciousness. Uh, but yeah, this one does feel particularly odd that that um, we all are aware of. You know, uh, even if we're not flying as much as we used to, we're all sort of aware of what's going on. And to to have them sort of try and explain it as normal, you know. The the issues of just trying to run an airline on you know on a day to day basis and yet we see everyone else not having these problems
1: uh, it doesn't it's not a good look at the very least and not to I don't want to get into a controversial area but a lot of this is driven by COVID and so brands are reacting to lots of government influence and consumer influence on what they have to do and that's really complex when you have employees and you have customers but part of this is kind of how you react to what the environment is, which is a little bit out of their control. So that's an important piece of this. I don't think that a couple of years ago we would have thought about this, or at least I didn't.
3: Yeah, I mean, definitely COVID is, has had a big impact. Uh, I, I mean, I, I do want to, um, bef- before we talk about anything that might be impacting things in a sort of more narrow band, it is important to note that uh, trust in general, amongst I'm speaking about the U.S. right now. We Brand Trust does a lot of international work, but we'll focus on the U.S. for now. Um, trust in American institutions and, to a large extent, American brands and businesses has been going down a lot over you know the years. If you look at the Edelman Trust Barometer, which we obviously keep keep an eye on the uh it's just been it's been going down 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 and uh the one piece of good news for brands is that uh it hasn't ever gotten as low recently as as trust in american government so maybe there's an opportunity <laughs> for brands to do something um but it's it's good to know that we're in that macro environment of people seem a little bit mistrustful and then uh yeah covid definitely we we actually did a uh a, a um a, 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 what we call an original inquiry we did a study on um, the experience of covid uh, it was, uh, it, we we actually used narrative inquiry, which is something we'll talk about, something that we, we partnered with you on, something we we partnered with EMI a lot on, um, but we also did some one-on-one um, in-depth qualitative interviews that we call emotional inquiry. And we learned that uh, that people were really shook by COVID. It kind of, it shifted things just enough that suddenly everything looked very unstable and uh, caused people to um, really kind of wonder, hey, if, if, if. Uh, if, if this could happen and it could go sort of from zero to 60 um, in a matter of days and weeks, um, can I actually rely on all these things, all these brands, all these businesses, all these companies that are um, that I think I can rely on? Maybe I can't. So, yeah, both both the macro trends and the immediate, the, the I say immediate, it's been almost two years we've been dealing with COVID. But uh, yeah. the macro environment and then also the environment of COVID have all definitely, uh, I think, eroded trust.
1: Yeah, interesting. Um, so. So why would you say it's important for brands to understand a measurement of trust? Uh, obviously, they want to improve trust, just like they want to improve their brand equity, and they want to improve their um, stock price, and they want to improve revenue. But I think trust is like a more emotional kind of, it's more of a feeling, right? Is that how you talk about it? Yeah, I, we, we talk about trust in,
3: in a number of ways, but we have a, a sort of fundamental model that we believe holds true, and it, it's it's something that we spend a lot of time digging into um, the, liter- you know, the scientific literature and, and things like that around as well. Um, the idea is that it more or less c- com- comprises three components, and the third one we've had a lot of debate about. Maybe we can have interesting debate about it today. I don't know, um, but there are two pretty clear uh, components of trust. One is uh, capability. Uh, does this person, does this company, does this shaky log over a, a, a river, any entity, does it have the capability to do the thing I need it to do in this moment or I want it to do in this moment? And then the second one, and, and here is where we move beyond logs, um, is uh, the, the intent, uh, not just the ability or the capability, but uh, the, the intent and the goodwill to, to do the thing. Um, so is it not just able to do it, but, but will it do it? Um, will this person uh you know follow the rules of the trust fall? Uh, will this brand uh send me this pair of shoes that that I just sent them a hundred dollars for? Um, and then the third one that's a little bit more uh emotional, as you say. Um, we've called it sometimes vulnerability, sometimes reciprocity. Um Lindsay, can you think of that? We've tossed around some other terms for this as well.
0: I think those are. The ones that are sticking out in my mind, most. Yeah. yeah and and this is about this
3: idea that um that there's some kind of uh, of of connection, some kind of emotional connection that happens between two individuals or between an individual and a brand uh, that has to do with sort of um feeling comfortable exposing, you know being somewhat vulnerable so that it will actually matter. If that other entity is is actually capable and will actually follow through on doing the thing, um, we've talked in we've done some studies around trying to figure out if if the if the brand itself can demonstrate some vulnerability, like not be perfect all the time, does that send a signal that this is a place where it's okay to be vulnerable? That's something that that is very interesting. We've seen some um, some indication indications that yes, that's indeed the case. Uh, but um, but yeah, that that's sort of how we think about trust at brand trust and how we think about measuring it uh when it comes to brands and consumers
1: i was really hoping that we were going to argue about those three but i think you nailed it i i think those are perfect i mean um i love the little emotional piece of it it's a little bit hard to describe the vulnerability piece of it Um, and that's that's where i'm assuming a lot of the research comes into play right so a lot of brands it's it's probably easier to define, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe you'll argue with me here, maybe it's easier to define the capability and the intent part of the brand and what it stands for, but the emotional connection and the reciprocity and the vulnerability that you're talking about, that's where the research, and you're all as experts in this field, try to get them to deeper understanding of what a brand really means to a consumer or a user. Is that right? Yeah, I... I um... Lindsay, I'll toss this to you to maybe talk a little bit about
3: how we've used research to dig into these areas. I just want to start by saying that the uh, the there's both sort of functional and emotional components of all those things. so there's the actual capability, like does the company have a manufacturing plant that makes the shoes? Right? But then there's also the, whether they do or don't, can they create the impression that they do? we could, you know, I, I don't want to say anything controversial, but I, i could argue that you know tesla or something like that you know back in the day um you know maybe created the impression that this was um a trustworthy um entity before it actually could maybe um you know completely fill uh you know play that live that out so so there all of those components have both um functional or rational and emotional components but absolutely the third one is the most emotional and so, yeah, so there are all sorts of ways that we uh, dig into these uh, questions around trust and brands. Um, as I was saying before, we uh, sometimes it's around a lot of the times it's around our flagship methodology of one on one in-depth qual. Um, but when we partner with EMI, we're often doing what we call narrative inquiry, uh, which is an online. We it, we've we've taken to call it, um, you know, the, the traditional term would be quality quant. But we've come to call it as qualit scale. Uh, because it really is about getting uh, deeper insights and deeper learnings through the power of memory and the power of story. So we've used narrative inquiry for a few trust studies now, um, both broad-based ones, general ones, and specific ones for clients to learn about their brand and their category. Lindsay, you're kind of the expert on that as the senior analyst. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about narrative inquiry in general?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So just as you were saying, Alex, you know, it's our quality scale methodology. So we can do uh, surprisingly deep qualitative research at a larger scale than our normal one-on-one in-depth interviews. So we're able to do hundreds of interviews through our surveys within a a couple days, a couple weeks. Um, And narrative inquiry utilizes the power of story paired with applied behavioral science to go beyond traditional online survey output. So we're able to actually capture emotion and capture meaning to illuminate human truth, which is what brand trust is all about doing. We want to illuminate human truth for, for our clients. Um, so what this looks like is we'll we'll use a combination of kind of open-end questions, short answer questions, multiple choice, scales, whatever you're looking for. Uh, but really the the crux of it is those open-ended questions where we're asking for stories, we're asking for experiences from our respondents. And so we gather that data and then we use human analysis, uh, mostly myself along with a few other uh, colleagues here. So we use that human analysis for those data points and the stories that were shared uh, within the open-end questions. And so through the human al- analysis, we're able to read between the lines and kind of get at what are they really saying? Whereas if we were to just kind of run that through, you know, an, an AI um, or some other kind of uh, uh, testing to, to find out what they're saying, we might not get the the real emotion and the real meaning behind what they're saying. So we're able to use our own human instincts, our own human analysis to, get a deeper understanding of what the respondent shared. So that comes into play a lot, especially in those uh, trust studies that we've been talking about, you know, just being able to get beyond what are people saying and what, are, what do they really mean?
1: No, that's, that's interesting. And you said this is really kind of a, what I would call like a quantitative online survey with, did you say hundreds of people where, you're, where you can do this? yeah yeah oh wow you're getting you're certainly getting into the quant territory with a lot of the advantages of qual that's pretty rare and i think that's where our industry is kind of moving that way we i was at a conference recently and a lot of brands don't even talk about quant or qual like they used to it used to be there was a, a this big differentiation between this is a quant this is a qual we iterate we go qual quant qual quant I feel like as an industry, we're really moving to this hybrid. I have a business question and I have all these tools to utilize to answer that business question. And they don't call it quant, they don't call it qual. It's really a, a tool to answer the business question. That sounds exactly what y'all are doing is this hybrid methodology where you talked about it as the power of story applied with paired with applied behavioral science. That's really interesting to me. Is that right?
0: Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that is what helps us to kind of go beyond traditional surveys. And, you know, of course, with, with your help, you help us to kind of weed out some of those respondents. But I think we, um, you know, what we use through those behavioral techniques and things uh, already kind of helps us to make the respondents kind of the best that they can be. So they're able and willing to actually share those stories with us uh, versus just saying, oh, I want to get through this survey as fast as I can. Give me my incentive of whatever it might be. Um, We actually get people who are engaged and really want to share their stories with us.
3: Yeah, I think the the key differences and first of all, I want to say we're all after and if uh, our CEO um, heard that I talked for 10 minutes about brand trust without mentioning human truth, I hope he doesn't listen to this, oh, goodness. So <laughs> Lindsay, you get the award for that. Um, but, but the human truth really is critical because it gets at the, at the, the crux of why our survey design is different. Um, because fundamentally there's just two components to any kind of research, but especially a, a quant survey, right? There's gathering the data and analyzing the data. And I feel like a lot of um, surveys that are whether they're I mean, they're more typically associated with quant, but they might be associated with like a focus group or something like that. They're sort of like, "Tell me why you do this thing or tell me what you think about this thing." And that's exactly the kind of conversation we have with our clients. Let's figure out what we want to know. But then that gets fed into a completely different questionnaire design, which is how how do we design this questionnaire to elicit the kinds of stories? That we can then use as input to our analysis to actually answer the question, because the consumer is it bless their hearts they, they're they're they they're not going to be able to tell you exactly what kind of product they want. There's the classic, you know, Steve Jobs example of uh, you know no one ever asked for an iPhone sort of thing. Um, but uh, what we can do is we can we can figure out how to pull from sometimes even the the non conscious of the of the uh, respondent because they're not sort of aware of the answers they're giving us they're, they're just telling us their stories we can actually pull the answer by having them tell us all these stories and then to lindsay's point doing the human analysis um to figure out what are they actually trying to say there what, what does this actually mean what's the why behind the answer to the question and that can get us some really powerful answers for our clients that, that which we label human truth and the only other thing i'll say that's really interesting to me because we have tried a lot of, I should say Lindsay, all credit where credit is due, has tried a lot of different text analytics and things like that to try and automate some of this, some AI and stuff. Um, and that has not worked really well because the computers just aren't that good at, at figuring out the gray space between human emotions. Um, but one thing we have been trying with more success is to um, do some coding to code the types of themes um, that show up in different stories so we can get a little bit more of a quantitative, you know, um, angle on which big themes are showing up more than others without, um, you know, without having to read every single word. And that helps us hone in on the stories that matter the most. But um, I think I got that right, Lindsay, you've done a lot of that work. Yep. So I want to
2: circle back to, uh, you both have mentioned a couple of these elements multiple times, but I know uh, Alex. You just said God bless the hearts of the consumers, right? Well, really, you know, even more so the online quantitative survey panel <laughs> respondents, right? Um, but the the topic I want to talk about, you know, you've you mentioned sort of having a really high level of engagement, um, eliciting the thoughtful types of respondent responses that are then impactful for this kind of research. Um, you know, we have had there's been this incredible trend towards prioritizing quality, which is almost a pendulum. We swing between price and quality, feasibility and quality. And, you know, as we make compromises, um, we always kind of come back to quality. But in a world where there are some panels who will limit the number of of open ends, um, you know, to three or four or five, in which, by the way, too, I don't know how much this crosses into your world, but when I say three to five open ends, brand trust in your world, that's three to five short answers. That's not even entertaining the idea of doing the type of storytelling open ends that that we do in narrative inquiry together. Um, But, you know, I've looked at these surveys, we've done them with you, I've looked at the data, you know, you all are able to get these incredible responses could you kind of describe for me obviously you don't have to give away you know kind of the secrets of exactly how narrative inquiry works but maybe describing the process and how you built that that experience that works so well what went into that um, and anything that you're able to share on the process because it really is the quality is driven by the respondent experience and this narrative inquiry is just such an incredible example of that.
0: Yeah. Um, So our, so narrative inquiry really came about by thinking of how do we do our research that we are so good at and so well-versed in with, you know, one-on-one respondents, how do we take that into an online format? So everything that we do in narrative inquiry is rooted in what we do in our methodologies that we've been doing for 30 years or so. Um, so we take all of that and kind of put it into narrative inquiry. So uh, where that research would typically have a moderator, we put a, a quote unquote moderator in our narrative inquiry projects. So we have a, 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 screenshot of a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A stock photo of a person who says, hey, my name is so-and-so. I'm going to be your uh, moderator for this. She introduces herself or himself. We uh, actually have it set up so that the um, moderator is very similar to the respondent and how they have Uh, talked about themselves in kind of the screening process. So if they answer that they are a female aged, you know, 30 to 35 of Caucasian uh, skin, that's the person that they're going to see as their moderator. And we found that people feel a lot more comfortable and feel a lot more open and willing to share things, especially some of the things that we're asking, asking them about, which can be pretty deep and, and pretty meaningful to them, they're more willing to share those things with people who look similar to them. Um, so I think that's a huge thing that we found in our iterations of narrative inquiry that has helped a lot with making feel, people feel more comfortable to share with us. Um, so we do that. We also kind of set things up front. We say, hey, it's gonna take this long. If it's gonna be a little bit longer than what you're used to. It's gonna take you maybe 20 to 25 minutes to complete this survey but we put that all up front we say this is going to be different than what you're used to so you know we we hope that you're going to remain engaged for that amount of time um we have different tips and tricks like that we've found over the few years that we've been doing this that that have worked really well and kind of build on each other but i think those are kind of the the two main things you know having someone who's similar who makes you feel comfortable. And it makes you feel like you're not just talking to a computer. You're not typing things into a computer. You're actually feeling like someone is going to read these. This human, uh, quote unquote, again, whoever, however he or she introduces themselves, this person might actually read them. So I want to try my best and give them what they're looking for.
2: Would it be fair to say that, you know, the combination of a a personalized um, moderator and you talked about setting really transparent expectations of what what is, you know, kind of above and beyond what we typically ask of the respondent. Um, basically, what you're doing is building trust with that respondent, right? I see is what you did there, Andrew. You can yeah. say that. <laughs> no, I, I think that's really cool, though, because we can, as we continue the, the conversation, you know, it's not just... Brand to consumer, right? We can also apply all of this from a research perspective. I think I'm interested to see if we can go down that road. But no, that's all yeah. really cool. And, and I see everything you talked about, Lindsay, is absolutely borne out in both qualitative and quantitative metrics when we run these surveys.
3: Um, it's been really cool to see it in action. I could add two quick things to that one, which is a kind of uh, um a little bit more sort of technical and functional, but um, I, it's also a shout out to you guys. Um, but I think partnering with the right um, you know, sample provider and platform provider is really important because um, one of the things we've noticed, we were already, we've already talked about, this is a 20, 25 minute survey. Um, it's really critical that we don't burn people out during the screener process. And uh, we've had to have long conversations with clients about this who maybe have unreasonable expectations. Um, this is why we call it Qual at Scale, not just not, uh, quality quant or Quant. Um, it's not about slicing and dicing by all these different, you know, it's, it's really about let's get, let's hone in as quickly as possible on the cohort we want to speak to with as few questions as possible, and then spend the vast majority of time collecting their stories. So working with someone who knows how to go find those types of people and make sure that we've got people who can make it through that screener um, is really important. And then uh, the second thing is is, um, is stories, hearing their stories. I think the power of story, we've mentioned it a couple of times, we haven't really talked about it, is uh, people, humans love stories and humans non-consciously arrange their memories and their lives around stories. And they, they, keep, they keep information through stories and they like telling stories about themselves and people love just plain talking about themselves. And so when people get into this survey, which is essentially just for, you know, to nuts and bolts of it, it's essentially two or three story. There might be a small barrage of questions on the back end or a couple of concepts to test, but basically we're collecting between two and three stories about the category, the brand from these respondents. Um, And once people get in there and they just start typing away, you know, a a story about themselves and a moment that is, they are the star, it turns out people really kind of like doing that.
1: Yeah, I, I bet it's it's gotta be a, a refreshing in some ways. If you can do if you can effectively do the things you're talking about, which are to give the respondent an opportunity to kind of tell those stories, and it's a little bit different than what they're used to. Uh, that's where kind of magic happens. And I this is a question really for Andrew. We this sounds challenging. And you know, Andrew, you're a pretty good researcher and most online quant, there's no way most respondents will be good respondents in this kind of scenario. I'm curious what your thought process is around how you find these respondents that are clearly doing what they, what they want them to do. Yeah, that that's a great question. Um,
2: and, you know, I to give credit where credit is due, the engaging nature of the questionnaire and the, you know, as Alex just mentioned, the the inclination to share rich feedback based on the exercise itself does go a long way in amplifying the good qualities of the panels that we choose. Um, from a like strategic sourcing perspective, which I think is what you're asking, um, really, what we look for is we look for any panel that has a multifaceted respondent experience as far as how the community is actually managed. So if there's a panel that, for example, we know they also sell um, in-home use tests, right? Or they recruit to online focus groups, or perhaps they even recruit to in person or telephone idea so on and so forth, right? Um, but there's a varied research, usage for the asset, then the potential that the respondents have been exposed to um, methodologies that require more feedback than clicking multiple choice questions, right, Um, then the more likely those respondents are to engage with that when asked to, uh, to provide their feedback in that format. That's one thing that I look for. Um, the other thing, and this is particular to EMI, uh, but we, you know, we run a couple thousand surveys every year, um, and we monitored dozens of, of quality metrics on every single panel and every single study that we run. And you know, we've had a quality dashboard for a couple years, but we recently just rolled out um, a whole new dashboard that actually has a, a proprietary quality scoring methodology attached to it. Um, and so I think, you know, choosing a panel at random and running it through something like narrative inquiry would be disastrous, <laughs> quite honestly. Um, you know, especially you throw a, a minimum word count at someone who doesn't wanna type and we're gonna get some really interesting interesting feedback. Um, but really, you know, just, if I can combine those two things and say, okay, looking in our system, this is a, you know, honestly, probably top 2%, top 3%. I mean, we're cream of the crop from a post survey removals metrics standpoint. Um, really high quality there. And I know that these respondents have been exposed to more than just pure quant. That combination, you put it through a great survey like Brand Trust's Narrative
1: Inquiry, um, and we're set up pretty well for success. Awesome. Great answer. Um... Is there anything else we'd like to talk about narrative inquiry? I feel like we just kind of got the tip of the iceberg here. Do you have a case study or anything else you'd like to mention before we go to some more different kind of questions? So, yeah, I mean, we've done this. Um, a, there's a lot of, I should say, first of
3: all, there's a lot of material available on our website, um, www.brandtrust.com, um, spelled just like you would think it is. And uh, we've done, we have, for example, um, a trust study that we conducted a few years ago that's up um, there free for download. We're also doing a presentation of it, a webinar presentation of it um, coming up on November 4th. You can go to our website and uh, sign up for it there. You can hear us walk through there, and you can actually ask questions through the webinar. It's November 4th uh, at noon Eastern, 11 Central. We're Chicago-based. That's why I say the 11 Central part. Um, so yeah, so definitely go check that out. Um, lots of interesting material, and in the webinar itself. Uh, you can sign up for the. Uh, I, the one thing I'll mention, maybe we we never really answered that question at the very beginning, other than the sort of intuitive answer of why should brands measure trust? Uh, and I'll just mention that there was uh, there was a client uh, of ours. Um, so, and then the one other thing I would mention is that uh, we do do these. We have a lot of broad-based uh, knowledge about trust and thought leadership available about trust and brands. And then we also run studies for clients to help understand more deeply what how trust shows up in their category, how trust shows up uh, with their brand, their, their, uh, their consumers, their audiences. Uh, for example, a few years ago, we did one for a large uh, membership-based organization here in the U.S. Um, where they had actually determined that one of the key drivers through, through um, quant work with another agency had determined that Um, that one of the key drivers of their brand equity was trust in the brand. And they felt like what they really needed to do was unpack that. They couldn't just do another survey or or something like that, or just go attack it. They had to really unpack it and understand it. And they came to us and we did emotional inquiry. That's our We've sort of alluded to that a few times, our flagship um, one-on-one in-depth interview methodology. Um, But we also did some broad-based narrative inquiry to Um, both validate the findings from emotional inquiry and to dimensionalize them across a few different populations that were of interest to this organization. And it really helped them identify some key tactics, some key strategies that they could go after to actually shift the needle on trust in the brand, which in turn would shift the needle on their tracking of brand equity overall. Um, And they've had a lot of success with that uh, since we worked with them a few years ago.
1: Awesome. So I will definitely sign up for that webinar. Um, we'll put that, We'll put a link to that in the show notes. And that is uh, Thursday, November fourth at noon Eastern. Should we ask some fun questions, get to know you all a little bit? Woohoo! <laughs> and Andrew, feel feel free to jump in here, Andrew, if you'd like. Um, we're bringing back the four Ps. We haven't done this. We've done it a few times this, this year, but we took the marketing mix uh, four Ps more traditional, and we try to have get to know our guests a little bit better. Um, with some questions. And so the first P is perform. Do either or both of you have something that maybe most people don't know about you or a hidden talent?
0: Um, You can go first, Lindsay. Oh, geez. I don't know if it's that most people don't know. I feel like everyone at at Brand Trust knows it about me. Um, I do a lot of CrossFit and and working out. Um, I don't know if it's a hidden talent, but... Most recently, I deadlifted 265 pounds. So that was exciting.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Is there a link to your Instagram on your website?
0: (laughs) (laughs) There is not.
3: (laughs) Wow. I can't, I can't beat that Uh, in, in either literally or, or in story form, (laughs) um, uh, I would say that one of the things that uh, that pe- most people don't know about me, uh, or they just seem surprised if it ever comes up in conversation, um, is that I am a certified scuba diving instructor. I spent a couple years uh, um, right after college uh, teaching scuba diving and and kept my certification up. So if uh, you know if uh, someone ever wants to, on a whim,
1: wants to learn how to scuba dive, uh, I'm I'm your guy. Okay, this this is a follow up question. Do you travel and scuba dive or do you jump on the Lake Michigan? Where do you
3: scuba dive? (laughs) I I actually don't. I don't dive very much anymore. I'm I'm sorry to say. um, But uh, if I do, it's because I have traveled somewhere warm and where no wetsuit is required, for sure. That's my first rule of scuba diving now. I will only go if no wetsuit is required. Because I taught in the Pacific Northwest where at least a wetsuit, if not a dry suit, was required. And it was great. It was fun. But those days are behind me.
1: That's awesome. Andrew has a million hidden talents. You want to mention one? <laughs> um, I don't know about if I really have a million hidden talents. I'm I'm trying to
2: think. This is one of your pretty standard P's, Um, And I've been on a while, so I'll try to do one I haven't done. Um, have I mentioned before that I'm a cellist? Have I said that before you on have, the podcast? You no, have, I don't think so. Not, not to me.
1: Yeah.
2: yeah. yeah. I, I do. I played the cello. I've been playing the cello for, gosh, 17 years now. Um, I played in college. I was in Xavier's Symphony. Um, I don't really play in an organized fashion anymore, but every once in a while, I'll break out the bow, rousing up the strings, and play when my kids are nowhere around to destroy the instrument. (laughs) But Yeah. And that's literally
1: perform, I guess, right? Musical instrument, yes. Yeah. Um, next P is pandemic. It's my favorite P um, for the podcast, not in real life. Um, do you have anything fun or quirky that you started doing since the quarantine started? I'm still addicted to marble racing. The new season just started recently. Um, Yelly's Marble Racing on YouTube every Sunday. That's what I do. Curious if either of or both of you have anything weird that you've started doing or continue to do during the pandemic and quarantine and the world. Uh,
3: I'll, I'll take this one first. I'll begin by saying I, I knew that a lot of uh, sort of obscure sports had sort of risen in popularity during uh, COVID and quarantine. For example, uh, you know, bags or, or cornhole, as, as I know everyone calls it in Cincinnati, but. Um, I did not know that marble racing had uh, had jumped up into the top echelons of competitive sports. So, um, congratulations on uh, taking part in that, Brian. Um, I mine is pretty easy because it's very memorable. I it's not something that I took up in general, uh, but a, a couple of uh, in around the end of March, beginning of April last year. Uh, I'm from back east. Uh, my family has a place in Maine. We live in down, you know, in Chicago, just outside of downtown, outside of the Loop. And things were getting a little wacky. We have two young kids, and we said, you know what? Maybe it would be better if we just sort of went somewhere a little quieter um, to ride out, you know, the next three four weeks, just while things are are really nutty. And um, so we got in the car with the two kids and drove straight the thousand miles from Chicago mm-hmm. to Maine. And uh, I mean, a cooler full of sandwiches, yelling at a, at, a, at a five-year-old to go pee on the side of the road. I mean, the whole nine, it was really, it was, it was the closest thing I hope that I'll ever experience to like zombie apocalypse. That's really what it felt like. Um, and then the two things that are funny about it in retrospect, one is obviously, you know, we didn't leave for six months. We thought we'd be there for three to six weeks, tops. We, top, we were there for six months. And then the other one is that, now the science tells us that 90% of our precautions, maybe 95% of them, were totally absurd and unnecessary. But um that was my that was my zombie apocalypse moment. And in some ways I look back on it fondly.
0: <laughs> Alan, I'm glad you can look back on that fondly. I have two kids who are probably close to your kids' age, and driving a thousand miles with them sounds awful.
3: <laughs> it's the power of the iPad.
1: <laughs> yes. Oh, Lindsay, top that.
0: Oh man. I don't know if I can top that. Um I I think the the quirkiest thing, I guess, um, and it it's I guess it's more my boyfriend's thing than than mine, but I help him with it. Um so along with I guess marble racing and competitive sports, um, sports cards and memorabilia has also had a huge boom. So my boyfriend has gotten into collecting and and selling uh, mostly football cards, but also some NBA cards um, as well. And he's actually started his own business with that. So I've been helping him with that. I guess the main thing that I kind of do is organize everything (laughs) because our basement is just filled with boxes upon boxes of cards. So I've had to take it upon myself because he's not an organized person. I've had to organize every single card and every single box. And that's what I've been doing.
1: (laughs) That's great. The the researcher in you is probably forced. You have to do it, I'm assuming. Um, You have to put some structure around it or, yeah. Um, All these are great. Um, Let's move on to pampering top indulgences either of you have some something you indulge in and i'm going to throw andrew in this one as well
2: andrew you want to take
1: it first sure
2: i i can and this sort of might tie into a, a little bit of the pandemic one too so my uh my wife and i went on um we went out to dinner for the first time in, in two years for our anniversary um, a couple weeks ago and as one of the appetizers we had a charcuterie board And we realized that was the first time that we had had some freaking meats, cheeses, and crackers in two years. And what is, you know, what is life without that? Um, And so over the last, uh, you know, so it's been about a month. um, Every Friday night, we make ourselves this massive charcuterie board for dinner. Um, And we have been indulging financially in some crazy (laughs) meats and cheeses and um yeah there's a store here in Cincinnati called Jungle Gems that's just they import crazy stuff from from all over um and we have yeah we've had some pretty pretty great charcuterie boards so yeah meats cheeses and crackers that's what I'm pampering myself with
1: Brian that's good good one
0: that's the way to go. I am all about the charcuterie boards. <laughs> um, I guess along the same lines, um, we my boyfriend and I do uh, a steak night. Just probably like once a month, we'll just get gigantic porterhouse steaks. Um, you know, get the cast iron really hot or the grill. Uh, put those on there. I usually do Brussels sprouts. Uh, with them, and so we have that. We have some wine, and that's usually like a, a monthly indulgence. And then I always have chocolate, co- uh, chocolate covered pretzels after.
1: <laughs> but we've actually been indulging in the office, and we get a little crazy in the office sometimes. And also, my objective is to give people FOMO about not coming in the office. So what we've done: my intern works at one of the nicest steakhouses in town. And she, I found out they throw away these mashed potatoes every night. They make them in the evening and they throw them away if no one eats them. So I said, bring them in, we'll use them. And then I'm like, well, if we're going to have this premium mashed potatoes, we're going to cook some steak. So I went out and bought some like premium steak. We have a little griddle in the office and a toaster oven, and we cooked like $100 worth of steaks for lunch and had mashed potatoes and stunk up the whole building. Um, So we... Indulge. We've done it a couple times in the office. That's that's fun for me, at least. I don't know about Brian. I don't. Oh, the
2: yeah. amount
1: the, the amount of
2: appliances that are taking over our like you know little kitchen that's basically just supposed <laughs> to be a currig and snacks. I think there's an air fryer. There's like a countertop broiler. There's they're bringing in so many different things. Yeah,
0: yeah. Between the steak, is- you had there's cookies that appear every week. Mm-hmm. There's Yep. The, the Frosted Flakes chocolate indulgence we heard from the guy from Kellogg's. I mean, yep. it's a weekly occurrence. Yeah.
1: Isn't, isn't our annual fried chicken day coming up? Yeah, that's coming up next month. We'll promote that on the podcast, <laughs> our annual fried chicken day. I think um, we're, are we going to get a fryer and do our own chicken this year? We could.
3: Yeah. Sounds like it would be pretty on brand for you at this point. Yeah, it, it would. We first. do that. We How need do you I here get in, in that on in. this? Yeah, come on, down. yeah. Can, can, <laughs> you sent Pittsburgh
0: people to come. I'm in yeah, Pittsburgh. I'll just drive on down.
1: <laughs> yeah, bring the boyfriend. We'll set up some a workout for you. Um, it'll be it'll be awesome. Um, Alex, we skipped you. What have you been indulging on? We've talked about food now for 15 minutes.
3: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I feel like I should I should continue the trend. Um, the I, this doesn't happen all that often, but I will say one of the things that, um, that I enjoy most doing that, uh, the family enjoys as well. Well, at least my wife does. I can't say that the kids care this much about it, but I really enjoy making a, a good stew, like a, a, a beef bourguignon or uh, you know, we try a whole bunch of different, you know, recipes. And, um, that is one of my real happy fall winter moments. Um, something I indulge in, you know, sort of, maybe five or six times every, um, every season, take a whole Sunday, do it up. Obviously that you got to pour some red wine in, then you got to pour some red wine in your glass. It's a, you know, it's sort of the equal parts. If it says, if it calls for one bottle of red wine, bring two. Um, But, uh, but that is definitely along that theme. That's something that I've always really uh, enjoyed. Uh, The thing I was going to say before that, which is just funny to me because it's such a, it's, it's my, probably my ultimate dad moment. Um, the, the only time I get to myself in any given day, right? is sort of like six, you know, six to 6.30 a.m. or something like that. Um, and I have a, I'm not gonna, I'm not joking at all when I say this. I, I really have a kind of a moment of Zen moment when I, I watch the local weather in the morning before everyone else is out of bed. And it's my moment to sort of see what's going on in the world. What do I got to plan for? Um, it's such a dad thing and uh, I am going to own it.
1: That's awesome. The little things in life, alone, time, planning your day, knowing what the weather is. And in Chicago, that's very important in a (laughs) major. Yeah. Well, this has been awesome. Um, Alex Lindsay coming to Cincinnati anytime. Um, we love having you guys on the show, um, for the listeners out there, um, that got through the food segment, please visit brandtrust.com. Um, consider going to the webinar Thursday, November 4th at noon. It's in the show notes. And I appreciate everybody joining the the podcast today. And Andrew, thanks for joining as well. Thanks, guys.
3: It's been a pleasure. Thanks, everyone.
0: Yeah, thanks.
1: Thanks.